welcome to this week's sermon from C3 Church Narara. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information or to contact us, visit c3church.narara.net. Yes, to answer your question, no, we have not been tempted to name any of the kids or grandkids Darth, but we did name the cat Darth. (laughs) We did. And our granddaughter is a Star Wars baby. She was born on May the 4th. So may the 4th be with you. And, And I told them if she was born on her due date, which was May 4th, that she had to, because it's our daughter's daughter, you have to give her the middle name Vader's, and they promised, and it did happen. So she, she's a Star Wars baby. She's got Darth. She's got not Darth Vader's as the middle name. <laughs> we would not do that to any of our children. Any of our children. It's bad enough having the last name. You wouldn't want to attach that first name to a kid. That would just. They'd probably arrest you for child cruelty at that point. That would be a little bit much. Um, Chris, I know the feeling of wanting to come up before the song is over. Um, I've done it a couple times, and if you think it's just a small church problem, um, how many of you have seen the video, the worship video for Ain't No Grave? They were playing it here earlier before we came in. It's, it's Bethel music. Look it up. Ain't No Grave is a great, great video of the, of the worship song. And about two-thirds of the way through the song, the, the worship leader is there, and you can see her look to the side of the stage and go... <laughs> So it's this massive church. It's on video online, and the pastor was about to enter too soon, and the worship leader went. You can actually see it in the video. So go to YouTube, Ain't No Grave, Bethel Music. You'll see it right there. It's hilarious. So it's not just the small churches. It happens everywhere. So that was what it reminded me of when I saw that. It's hilarious. So, All righty. Let's take a look at where we're going to go now. These next, uh, this next session is how to discover and use what your church does well. Good news, your church does something well or it can. You may not know what it is, that doesn't mean it does not exist. The challenge is to discover it and then to use it. I've been at my current church for over 27 years. Before we came, uh, we had an interview. Some, some denominations, they appoint pastors in ours. Each church and each pastor is independent, so you got to go on job interviews. So I went to the job interview, and the last question they asked me in this job interview for the current church that we're at was, what's your vision for our church and for our community? And my answer was, I don't have a vision for your church or your community. <laughs> I could see them mentally checking my name off the box in their head. I said, I don't have a vision for it because I've been here for two hours. I don't know your church and I don't know your community, so I'm not going to pretend I have answers that I have no access to. But here's my pledge. If God calls me to pastor your church, I will take as much time as it takes to work with you for us together to discover God's vision for this church and for our role in the community. It must have worked because they hired me and I'm still there 27 years later. I tell you that story because I meet a lot of small church pastors who are frustrated with this idea of casting vision. Um, And a a lot of the time, the frustration is along the lines of, you know, the church leadership 
is telling me we got to cast a big vision. And uh, if you don't have a big God-sized vision that's impossible to do without God's help, then you're not casting a vision that's proper. And some of them will go, but I just, that's, I, I, I don't have a new vision. I don't have a, 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 a different kind of vision. I, I feel like I'm called to pastor this church well and to reach the community. And none of it feels outsized or, or huge. It just feels like obedience to scripture. And I've actually had several small church pastors ask me, is it, am I allowed to just do the great commandment and the great commission, or do I have to come up with a cool mission statement that rhymes? <laughs> I have zero ecclesiastical authority to do what I'm about to do, but I'm going to do it anyway. I hereby give thee permission. You know I'm serious because I'm using King James language. I hereby give thee permission to have no mission or vision statement in your small church other than the great commandment and the great commission, be it so ordained. Yeah. Now, this is one of those left circle, right circle, big church, small church differences. In the big church, they have to have a mission statement that is simple, memorable, and repeatable. Why? because the pastor isn't going to be in the room for 99% of the events that they do, and so the mission statement keeps everybody on task. So there's no mission drift. In a small church, if they're not sure that what they're doing matches the mission of the church, they don't have to check up the mission statement. They can go, let's ask the pastor. They're right here. <laughs> We're there. We do this in relationship. We do this in conversation. So you don't need a mission statement that's unique to you. It doesn't have to rhyme. It doesn't have to alliterate. You can do the Great Commandment and the Great Commission and have an understanding of how that fits within your context, even if nobody's able to say it in a pithy way. It really is okay. Because, and another reason for that is, again, from the big church circle, they will often teach Pastor, you are responsible for the vision of your church. You've got to go into your closet of prayer. You've got to get a vision from God, and then you've got to cast it to the church. And I've actually heard them say this multiple times. By the time you get sick and tired of repeating your vision statement, they're just beginning to catch it. So keep going. They are correct from the big church circle. In the small church, however, just like we talked about earlier, Culture is not going to be only led by the pastor, but it has to be something that we discover within the church so that we then get some permission to help lead it. It's the same way with a mission statement or a vision statement, or, or simply the mission or vision. We need, in the smaller church, the vision of the church, where we're going to go, is far more a collaborative effort among the membership, which, which is, has good news and bad news attached to it. The bad news is you actually have to listen to your congregation members occasionally, the good news is you do not bear the entire responsibility for creating vision in your church. There are others who can share that burden with you. Your shoulders can be lighter. And the best way that I know to explain how that happens is, I'll just put it up in this phrase and then I'll explain it. It's okay for a pastor's vision to be helping people fulfill their vision. Um, I'm going to assume certain things theologically about the people in this room. There may be shades about how we interpret this, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to assume that everybody in this room believes in the priesthood of believers. New Testament concept, right? Which means that we believe that the person sitting in row three on Sunday morning, if they have a relationship with Jesus, has just as much opportunity to hear from God as the pastor does. I tell my congregation this on a regular basis. You don't need to hear 
from God through me. You can hear from God all by yourself with an open Bible. Right? That priesthood of believers. Now, if they have the ability to hear from God, shouldn't we as leaders access ourselves to that when it occurs? It shouldn't just be a one-way monologue. It should be a dialogue. Now, again, in a larger church, you can't do that. You can't, because if you're trying to do it in a larger church by hearing the voices, it's leadership by survey, and that's not leadership. But leadership by conversation, by the entire body of Christ, hearing, hearing and getting together, that is a way that happens in a smaller church. In our congregation, virtually every good thing we do now did not initiate with me. It initiated in the heart of somebody else in the congregation who came to me with a crazy idea. And a big part of my job as a leader of the church is to figure out how to say yes to their crazy ideas. Now, I, I didn't say say yes to their crazy ideas. I said figure out how to say yes to their crazy ideas by turning it into something slightly less crazy sometimes or by simply resourcing it, or by refining it, or helping them edit it, or give them a partner in it. But we can take that and we can mold it, and we can together as a congregation come find out what the vision is. Now, when we do it together as a congregation, another advantage is you don't have to sell people on a vision that came from them. It's pre-sold. <laughs> right? So when somebody comes and says, the Lord has laid something on my heart, and you go, Let's present that to the church and see if they want to do that. That happened to us several years ago. There's a, a woman came to me and she said, I've got a burden for abused women and children. I've been helping out with this group. They're not even a church group, but they own three apartment complexes. There's about 15 to 20 apartments in each complex. And they can move into the first apartment complex and they can live there for the first couple of weeks. They can show up with just the clothes on their back and their kids. The second complex, they set them up in an apartment and they went through the whole process. And she said that they need so much help. And I was just wondering if our church might be able to get behind them. I said, see me on Sunday. i got someone I want you to talk to. So on Sunday, she comes over. I pull somebody else in, bring him into the office. I ask the first lady to tell the second lady, tell me your story. She starts telling the story. The second lady starts crying. And then before we know it, we've got to stop the conversation because she's sobbing in her seat. And I, once she calms down, what's going on? She looks at me. She says, how did you know? I said, how did I know what? How did you know I came out of an abusive relationship? I've never told anybody. I said, I didn't know that. She said, then why am I in this room? I said, because remember about six, seven weeks ago, you came to me and said you had these administrative skills and you didn't know where they could be used? I said, yeah. She said, yeah. I said, I said when an opportunity came up, I'd let you know, yeah, this is that opportunity. Because she has a passion to help. We need someone who can help administer all of these ideas. What if? And what I didn't know, but the Lord did, was that that was what her background was, so immediately she got it. So what did they do? They got up on a Sunday morning with me. They explained their heart. That is the easiest sell we've ever had for a ministry in our church's history. You don't have to push hard on that one when the two of them are getting up and sharing their heart. Since then, and we'll talk about this later, the singularity of focus, we have determined that that ministry to, the, to women and children is the only local ministry that we do any involvement with. We used to do you know, a little bit at the food bank over here and a little bit over here, and all good ministries, but we weren't, we weren't really deep in any of them. And this has so much need and so many different ways that they can use our help. We've decided we're going to go completely, fully committed here. This is our place. It's not a Christian group. We get to bring Jesus into it. And so we help them set up apartments and so on. It's just a wonderful ministry. And when we first got involved, they said, when you show up, you cannot tell them where you're from a church. You can't wear your church T-shirts. You cannot... 
put a, 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 an article about the church in the, in the apartment that you set up. You can't do any of that. It's fine. We'll just show up. There's something in the Bible about uh, widows and orphans, we think, in a couple places. So we'll just do the widows and orphan thing and we'll leave it to Jesus. And we've been doing that for five years now. And a little over a year ago, they came to us and said, you know how in hotels they have that Bible in the nightstand? I said, yeah. They said, would you mind doing that for us? What happened? We had earned their trust. And so now we've had an opportunity to minister to them. We've actually had a, only one in the five years, one woman come, give her life to Christ. She came with her six kids by three husbands, came to church a year ago Easter, uh, gave her life to Christ, and by the next Sunday she was gone because they move out of our area as fast as they can to get away from their abuser. So we do all of our ministry into a, minis into a place that simply will not put pe more people in front of us on a Sunday morning. It won't happen. And no other church would help them because every other church said, basically, if it won't put butts in our seats, we're not going to help. They didn't put it that way, but that was the end result. And we just said, it's widows and orphans. We're just going to be obedient. And who knows what kind of impact we're having to these people as they go around the world having been blessed by us. So we're just doing that. And that didn't come from me. That came from their vision. And now it's become our church's vision. So no, pastor, you are not entirely responsible for the entire vision casting of your church. When God gives somebody in your congregation a great idea, we get to say yes to that, and we can help refine it and get it to the point where it needs to be. That's what's happening right now. If, if I was coming in today and I was saying, I've got this great ministry and I want you to support my ministry, you wouldn't have come back after lunch. I'm here not for you to support my ministry. I'm here to give you resources to take home to support the vision God has given you and your church. What if we did that with our congregations? Right? The old men will see visions. Young men will dream dreams. Right? All, 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 the New Testament is full of this idea that everybody is involved in the vision. So what if we started functioning that way a little bit more? So... There are great ideas in our church. There are wonderful things. So when we, in discovering what our church does well, it doesn't mean that the burden for that is completely on the primary leader. It's something that we can find out in conversation through a church, especially if the church is healthy. So we need to start working on that. Now, how do we start getting there? Let me give you some practical steps to start getting there. Um, yeah, we'll keep that there. Uh, I, there's an old fable about a guy who's walking around a farm and he comes around to one side of a barn, and there's been an archer shooting arrows in the side of the barn. And there are five painted targets, and there are five arrows, one each dead center of a, each painted target. And he looks at him and goes, wow, that's five arrows, five dead center. You must be practicing a lot. The archer doesn't say anything. He pulls the five arrows out, puts them in his quiver, walks around to the other side of the barn. There's nothing on that side of the barn except the barn door. Five times he aims for the far barn door. Five times he misses it in completely random other spots. But the archer doesn't seem concerned at all. Instead, he walks over to a paintbrush, picks up the paintbrush, and paints a target around where each arrow hit. To me, this is a great picture of how we as a congregation, especially in a smaller church, can figure out what God is calling us to do. I want you to imagine that instead of shooting five arrows, the archer shot 100 arrows. What you would discover is that arrows tend to clump. There tends to be patterns in the way they land. So maybe 50 of the arrows still hit randomly, 
but maybe 25 of them kind of clump over here, and maybe another 25 kind of clump over here because of the stance of the archer, because of the prevailing wind that day, because of whatever reasons, they tend to hit these two spots quite a lot. If you discover you're hitting those two spots quite a lot by mistake, draw a big old target there and start aiming there in, on purpose. If you're hitting there a lot by mistake, you will hit there even more if you aim there on purpose. So what does that mean for our churches? Let's, I don't know what to do as a church. What do we do? I don't know. Look at the Bible and do the Jesus stuff. Do the Great Commandment and the Great Commission. Quit worrying about a clever mission statement that rhymes. Just forget about it. Do the stuff you know every church is supposed to do. But now, pay attention to what works. Pay attention to your, how your church does it well. And then do it on purpose. There's a wonderful little church in a very tiny little place called Kurtz, Indiana, right in the middle of the U.S. Kurtz isn't even officially a city. Uh, if you put a pin in Kurtz and you put out a thread 40 kilometers and put it around Kurtz, so you're talking about an 80-kilometer diameter, there are fewer than 3,000 people in the region around this place called Kurtz, Indiana. Again, not even officially a city. In Kurtz, which is four streets wide and five streets deep. That's all there is there. There's one ch church. It's a Nazarene church. I happened to do a conference there a few years ago because the group they were a part of, they happened to be central to. So everybody came into this tiny little town. Little chapel, le well less than half the size of this room and just a couple other rooms. And at the end of the conference, I asked the pastor to give me a tour. Didn't last long. <laughs> and at the end of the tour, I said, this seems like a really busy, busy building. He said, oh, it is. We got all kinds of ministry going on. I went, how? There's nobody here. He said, oh, that's a part of my story. I said, tell me the story. He says, I've been here for six years. And at four years, I was just about ready to leave. He said, I was sitting at a, at a funeral reception for yet another funeral. All we did was bury people. The church is literally dying beneath me. But he says, these, we used to do these funeral receptions, and I always enjoyed the funeral reception. The food was great. The people were welcoming. It was wonderful. And I'm sitting at yet another funeral reception going, God, why have you brought me to this horrible place? The only thing we do well in this church is funeral receptions. And then he went, oh, we do this well. We do this well. We do this well. He said, I went to the funeral home. I found the funeral director, and I told him this. From this point on, whenever anybody dies in this region... You, you tell them and you call us and you let them know that on the day they have their funeral, we will show up with any kind of food for any amount of people in any place they want. We will cook for them. We will serve them. We will clean up after and we will get out of their way. We will give them a free funeral reception on the day they bury their loved ones so they got one less thing to worry about on that difficult day. Since then, we have touched every single family in this region. And, he, and as he says that we're standing in his, his office, and he says, actually, as on Monday, I'm packing up my office. I said, you're not leaving, are you? He goes, oh, no, i got to move down to basically we're changing the janitor's closet into my office. I said, why are you leaving this office? He says, well, as you can see, this is the only place you can see into the sanctuary from. So on Monday, we're going to convert this into a, a, a nursery because for the first time in over 15 years, we have babies. Church growth through funeral receptions. <laughs> Title of my next book. Now, do not go home and decide you're going to launch a skate park or start funeral receptions. That belongs to us. you got to find your own. My point is this. The thing that, that he thought was the sign of their death, because it was literally dying, 
He said, we do that well. What if we do it on purpose? And sometimes the thing God has called you to do is the thing that you hate the most about your church right now. I'm not saying for sure, but maybe it sure was for him. If you can take literal death, literal funerals, and turn it into the way your church starts having an impact, that means you can take anything that God gives you and do so. Discover what your church does well, then do it on purpose. That's what Kurtz, Indiana did. They discovered what we do well. We do funeral receptions well. Okay, well, let's use that. We discovered that in our church years ago. We train people up and send them out well. We, one after another after another, we're constantly saying goodbye to great people, especially young people, after we spent years training them and getting them ready. And as soon as they're really, really good at the ministry we've trained them for, some other church comes along and offers them a job that pays. And so they're so unholy, they want a roof over their head and clothes on their back, so they take the paying gig. And we realized a few years ago, we're doing that a lot by mistake. What if we do it on purpose? So two of our primary ministries are designed not to put more people in our seats. One to send them out into ministry, and one to a group that will never bring people into our seats because they're going to head out of our county as fast as they can. But they're the things we do well. And so we decide we're going to do them on purpose. Now, so the first thing you want to do is do the Jesus stuff, shoot those arrows, now pay attention to what works and why, and once you figure out the pattern, here's what works and why, put a big target there and do it on purpose. Now, after you start doing it on purpose, then you need to do something called front-loading the value. That is feature what you do well. Some of our churches do something well, but nobody knows about it. We're not promoting it. Most of you in this room know, I mean, Hillsong Church, that was not their original name. They changed it because they became known for their songs. So they thought, they thought, this is what we're known for. Let's front load it by actually putting it in the name of our church. I'm not telling you to change the name of your church. I'm telling you to put out front what you do best. Another tiny little church in a tiny little town called Ione in California where we live. It's in Northern California. Right next to the town is a state penitentiary, a men's penitentiary. There are more men in the penitentiary than there are people in Ione. The people in Ione call them our friends in the gated community. I love that. Because it's a men's prison, uh, there are women and children constantly showing up in Ione for a few months or so while dad is uh, in prison. And because they're just showing up for that reason, they don't have any means of support. So the kids are running through this city, you know, with just making a mess of things. So this little tiny church in Ione, California decides we have a passion to reach these kids. And so long story short, they start doing ministry to these kids. They give away backpacks. They use other ministries to help them. They give away backpacks. They give away shoes. They do all kinds of things. Their entire focus in that church is one thing. We minister to the at-risk kids in our community. If you go to Ione, California today, and you ask for the church by name, almost no one will know what you're talking about. But if you say, where's the church that cares for kids? Virtually everybody in Ione will point you to that church. On their website, on their Facebook page, there's a picture of the church building, but it's behind a bounce house with kids in it, and a plastered across it is the church that cares for kids. So they, they did the Jesus stuff, widows and orphans. Then they decided, let's do it on purpose since we're doing it by mistake already, and now let's let everybody know this is who we are. Now, I know for some people, it's like, well, what about older people? If it's just for kids, are you leaving the older people out? Well, no. Kids need grandparents. What about young adults? Well, kids need older siblings to look up to. But if you're in that church, you will be about ministering to kids because that's all they do. And again, even if it's still you go, well, they're leaving a lot of people out. Here's the deal. Before they decided to do that, they weren't doing anything well. 
and now they're doing one thing well. That sounds like forward progress to me. Some of us aren't willing to let go of the things we don't do well because we want to please everybody, but in fact, we're pleasing nobody. Better to do one thing well than everything kind of so-so. But we're, uh, very few of us are willing to make that decision. So do what Jesus says to do. Shoot the arrows. When you figure out what you do well, put a target around it and do it on purpose. Then front load it so everybody knows what it is that you do well. Then, when people live in really big cities, they have a, a rule they call the closet rule. So if you're living in a big city and you've got a small closet because it's really expensive to live there, but you want to keep up with the latest fashions, they have a closet rule. The closet rule is simply this. You don't put a garment into your closet until you've taken a garment out of your closet. Reduces clutter and it keeps you up to, up to fashion. In our churches, I think we need, all need to have a closet rule. Don't add a new ministry until you've dropped an old one. And some of our churches need a two-for-one sale. Clutter happens when you don't pay attention to it. Simple is hard. Right? In your house, it's the same thing. Where does all this stuff come from? You, didn't, you don't have to work hard to clutter your house. You have to work hard to keep it simple. It's the same thing in our churches. You don't have to work hard to keep adding ministries. They will simply add up. You will have to work hard to simplify them. That happened not long ago in our church. A couple years ago, the woman who led our, our kids' ministry had to leave. And the only person I had to replace her was an 18-year-old young lady who had never done it before but had a heart for kids. So I thought, i got to figure out how to redesign our kids' ministry so it can be led by an 18-year-old who's never done it before. Small church problems. So I listed the five things. I listed what we did, and there were five main things. Sunday morning, Wednesday night, VBS, a couple of things like that. And then I looked at them. I said, let me prioritize them. So I prioritized them, most important to least important. Most important was Sunday mornings. And then I asked myself, what would happen if we stopped doing all those other four things and only did the one thing that's most important to us? So I brought it to the two helpers that we have. And I said, what if we did that? And they looked at me and said, are we allowed to do that? <laughs> well, I'm the pastor, and I'm suggesting it, so I th I'm going to say, yeah, we're allowed to do that. And they said, so all the time we've been putting into all five things we can put into one, yes. All the resources, yes. All the creativity, yes. All the budget. Do we have a budget? We do? Oh, okay, yeah, I won't cut your budget. All of it goes into just the one thing. And their, their response was relief. Here's the deal. In a big church, if you've got five main events for kids, you have a different team doing each of the five. In a small church, if you've got five main events for kids, you've got the same people doing all five, and they're tired. So we cut all, and we, we decided we are not going to add anything else until our closet gets bigger either because we have more leaders or we have more kids or we have a bigger budget, whatever it means for the closet to grow bigger. And now for the last, I think it's been three years, we do one thing for kids and only one thing. We do Sunday morning. But Sunday morning is so much better than it used to be. We were doing five things badly. Now we're doing one thing well. Is that an easy decision to make? No, it's not. In most places, you will get far more resistance than we got. And over other things, we've had a lot of resistance. But it's the best decision we made. We had to do the closet rule. We won't add a ministry until we've dropped one or until our closet gets bigger. Now, how do you start making that decision about what things to drop? Right? That's Some of you are already ahead of me in thinking that. Okay, I want to drop some stuff, but what do I drop? What do I keep? Ask these two simple questions that almost no church ever asks. 
What do you do well that you'd like to do more of? What do you do poorly that you'd like to do less of? It's one of those things where you look at it and you go, it's so obvious. You notice I'm not saying, hey, what's the cool church down the street doing? Let's do that. No. I'm saying, what do you already do? Your DNA, your church, your strengths. You do something better than something else. You may not even think you do it well, but you do it better than the, you know, you do it less bad than the other things. So what do you do the best? Would you like to do more of that? What do you do poorly that you'd like to do less of? And what if you did, what if you took the resources from the thing you don't do well and put all of them into the thing you do, you do well, you do it, you'll do it better. It's the reason we prune rose bushes. We don't prune rose bushes to kill roses because we hate roses. We prune rose bushes because there's too much energy going into the dead branches. And when the branches are cut off, that energy can now be diverted into the good branches and you actually have more and better roses. The same way in our churches. A lot of us need some serious pruning. We're trying to do too much. Why? Usually because we've been listening to people from the big church circle that can do all of those departments and all of those divisions and all of those different things, and they can do them all well. We can't. Yes, we serve a limitless God, but I'm not him. I have limits to my time. Our church has limits to our time, to our resources, to our facility. And we have to be good stewards of the limited resources we have. And the best way I know to be a good steward of it is to aim it all into one place. One of the reasons why, for instance, the only place that we minister to is that abused, a home for abused women and children is because there's nobody else there. So we can have massive impact there and we can see the impact on a regular basis. We don't support any big ministries in our church. We're, we don't support World Vision. We don't support any of these other big ministries because we think they're bad. No, they're great. But if we're supporting big ministry, we're a drop in a massive bucket and we can't see our impact. And so it gets harder to maintain interest when you can't see the impact. We have no problem maintaining interest from our people in helping at the home for abused women and children because the impact is massive and immediate. We know we're changing lives. We can see it in front of us because we found a small ministry and we have gone deep. Why? We do it well. And we stop doing things we were doing poorly. Is it easy? No. Is it essential? Absolutely essential. So, again, go over it again. We want to do the Jesus stuff, shoot arrows. When you figure out which parts of it you do best, put a big arrow around there. Then front load the value, make sure everybody knows this is the thing we do best, and then get rid of everything but that, and only do the thing we do best. And the smaller the church is, the more important it is to narrow it down to just that one thing. Well, what about the other things? I, I, I was just in, we were just in Shepperton, um, just north of Melbourne, last week, and I shared this with the uh, ministerial group in conversation. And one of the pastors started looking around the table and went, oh, to you, he goes, you do such and such well, and your church does such and such well, and we do this well. What if, in addition to each of us doing the things we did well, we shared with each other what it is? So if somebody comes to my church where we do recovery well, but they need help with whatever, they can say, oh, we're a recovery church. They're a whatever church. You can go there to get that while still attending our church and the church in Shepparton. 
is now beginning to work together as congregations to understand what each of their individual strengths are and then partnering with each other to bless the community more rather than one church trying to do it all or one congregation trying to do it all. The entire church of Shepparton is working together congregation to congregation to begin to support and help and bless each other and reach the community. That will have impact on Shepparton almost more than almost anything else we can do. Because what did Jesus say? By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have more programs in the church down the street. No, if you have love one for another, and if we share that with each other. So what do you do well? Do more of that. What do you do poorly? Do less of that. Now, how do we get to that point then of making these changes? We need to do something that I call moving out of a destination mindset and into a process orientation. Now, a destination mindset is what most of us have in our head when we hear the word church. If you ask anybody, what picture is in your head when you hear the word church? Everybody has a picture in their head, and I'm going to give you a fairly typical picture that a lot of people will have in their head when they hear church. Somebody says, I'm going to plan a new church. What, what, somebody, what a lot of people have in their head is something like this. We're going to buy a piece of land. We're going to build a building on it. Uh, back in the old day, we're going to bolt pews to the floor. We're going to put a sign out front. We're going to be a part of a denomination. We'll put the pastor's name up front and make sure they're paid full. We're going to put a big old uh, pulpit on stage with a plaque on the side that says, don't anybody dare move this until everybody in the family who donated this pulpit has died. And we're going to have, we're going to sing these songs. We're going to have this curriculum. And it takes so long to get there. It is so hard to get to that point where we go, ah, we have the church we envisioned. When you arrive at a destination, what do you stop doing? You stop moving. So a lot of our churches get to a destination point. It may look something like I described. It may look completely different than what I described. What I described doesn't matter. We've got a, uh, this destination in our head. We get there, we land there, and we go, ah, oh, we now have the church of my dreams. We have, we've arrived at a destination. And then because we've arrived and because we're tired, we stop moving. And then 20 years goes by, and we look around, and we go, how do we lose touch with the community? Well, because you, you freeze-dried yourself in place, and they kept on moving. And let's be frank, some of us haven't even dusted the fake plants on our stage in a decade. Right? I know, because I've been in some of those churches. I checked before, before I said that here. No, 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 fake, plants to, no fake plants to dust up here. Right? But we, right, we arrive, and then because we're there, we don't see that it, how static it is. So how do we help our people move into this idea of changing and adjusting and updating on a regular basis? We've got to move them away from this destination mindset that this is what church is. And I don't mean theologically, obviously, I mean methodologically. Into a process orientation. Now, what is that? I want you to imagine that you want to run a marathon. So in order to train for a marathon, there's a, court, there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a track near you that you can run around. And so you get out in the morning, you're ready, you're going to do this, and you, you're going to run around that track four or five times to get ready. And once around the track, and you're, <sighs> you're done. You didn't realize how out of shape you were. But you're determined. So the next day you go out and you run it again, and at the end of it, you're slightly less tired. By the third or fourth day, you're doing it two times before you're exhausted. At the end of the month, you're doing five, six, seven, eight times. A couple months later, you are going around that track. I want take a look at my fingers. See what my finger's doing? This is a process. A process has two ingredients, motion and consistency. 
motion, and consistency. This is what process looks like in a church. What we usually do is we do one or the other. We do consistency. Boom! We are going to stay here. Destination. And then 20 years goes by and we realize, uh-oh, we lost touch. Now we need some motion. So it's mm. And then 10 years later, it's motion. Mm. And then it's got to change everything. And people are going crazy. Oh, no, stop. And we, and, they, and we go, oh, our church just doesn't like change. No, that's not the case. Because if you have process, it has motion built in. And it has consistency built in. So they have the comfort of consistency. They know what's going to happen next. But they have the motion that moves them forward. Motion and consistency. That's what a process does. Okay? We think churches don't like change. That's not the case. Churches can handle change. They just don't like to be surprised. Too often, we don't do anything, and then we change everything, and we don't give them adequate explanations why. A process helps them understand why the change is occurring. I'm going to tell you the process we do at our church. You can take or leave or edit this however it works in your church. process in our church is very simple. We are always improving our least effective ministry, and we are always improving the least effective part of our building. That's our entire process. We are always improving our least effective ministry, and we're always improving our least effective part of the building, and we always lead with ministry. So currently, the ministry that we are trying to improve is men's ministries, because shock of shocks, some churches don't do men's ministries well. We've never done it well, and everything else is going along real well, so we're working real hard at men's ministries, and for the first time in 27 years, it feels like, hey, this may be working. And then after we improve that ministry, then we look around and we go, now what's the least effective part of our building? We lead with ministry, because sometimes when we change the ministry, that affects the part of the building we need to change. So years ago, when we made that big change to children's ministry, then we had to improve the children's area because of the ministry change that we'd made. So the building change always follows the ministry change. So when people come to our church, if they go in a membership class, we tell them in the membership class, there will always be a ministry under construction, and there will always be a part of the building under construction. Always. Constant update, constant improvement, but by an understandable process. Nobody ever wonders, why are they doing that? Because it's the least effective part of our building. That's why. Why are you changing that ministry? Because it's currently our least effective ministry. We're not saying it's a bad ministry. We're not saying it's unnecessary. We're saying all the other ones are doing better, and this one is the least effective, so we want to help you get better. It's less intimidating. The process gives them a comfort level. It really helps. Whatever your process may be will be different than ours, and that's okay. And then a big part of our process to help bring people along, and this will be the last one for this session, then we'll give you a little bit of a stretch break. We need to give our leaders time to ponder big decisions. Let me give you an example of that. I've been out of church 27 years. At year seven, like I said, we had that aha moment, hey, the church is healthy. And over the next year or so, as we were pondering where to go next, one of the things I discovered was we needed to change our church name. The name we had had a bad reputation in the community because of bad history. It also was a name that was more connected to a different denomination than ours. So it was, you know, people who were in that denomination would come to ours and go, oh, it's not that, and leave. And people who uh, were in our denomination didn't show up because we sounded like we were in another denomination. It wasn't working for us. So we do this thing in our board meeting. Uh, and what I do is this. I promise our board, all of our leaders, I will never bring to you a big decision and ask you to make, uh, to make a decision about that decision in the same meeting that I bring it up. I'll always give you at least one meeting's advance notice. So I, church name change, big choice. 
So end of our deacon meeting, I said, okay, I got a big idea. Here it is. I presented the idea. We need to change our church name. Here's why. Then the rule is for us, we don't talk about it. We pray about it. We go home. We don't talk about it in the meeting. You don't even talk about it to each other, and you don't tell anybody else. It's one of the few times we ask them to even keep it from their spouse. Why? For one month or one week, depending whether it's a staff meeting or board meeting, you are to think and pray and ponder about this, and you are to ask the Lord to speak to you about it. And then after we've had that time to think, ponder, and pray about it, then we'll have a conversation. So the next month we come back, end of the meeting, I, I present it back again, big idea time, church name change, what have you thought about in the last month? When I do that, the longest standing, most respected member of the board is the first one to speak up, and he goes, Pastor, when you said that last month, I knew exactly what was going on. Nobody's changing the name of my church. I thought, oh boy, we're dead in the water. He said, but then we were, uh, we were on vacation since the last meeting. I said, yeah, I noticed you were gone a couple Sundays. He said, yeah, when we were gone, uh, we were looking for a church to worship in on Sunday, and my wife was looking through the local churches, and she was reading off some of the names, and she read one name, and I went, oh, I don't want to go there. That sounds like some dull, old, dry, boring church. And she went, Al, that's exactly the same name as our church. <laughs> True story. True story. I, I gave the Holy Spirit a month. I didn't have to do any of the work. Now, I know that's almost too perfect a story. It sounds like one of those made-up pastor stories. So let me tell you, it's actually in my book, Small Church Essentials, and when I wrote it, the folks at Moody actually emailed me and said, you know that story about that name change? I go, yeah. He said, did that actually happen? I went, yeah. They said, um, the guy that it happened to, can you still get a hold of him? I said, yeah, he's still in the church. He said, they said, okay, good. Can you write it out exactly like, copy it from the book, put it in a letter form, with a space for him to sign his name and you to sign your name on the bottom. We want his signature verifying that this story took place. <laughs> true, true. So I wrote it up in a letter. I handed it to him. He read it and went, yeah. I said, can you sign it for me? Oh, okay, fine. So today, at Moody headquarters in Chicago, Illinois, there is a file cabinet with a letter verifying the truth of the story I just told you. <laughs> I say that because otherwise it's like, it sounds like one of those made-up preacher stories, which no preacher in this room is ever guilty of doing, I know, right? All right, what, what, so what's the point behind this? You give them time. But by the time we as pastors or leaders of our church have, uh, have enough nerve to present a big idea, we've been thinking, praying, and pondering about it for days, weeks, sometimes months, Right? And we finally get convinced of it, and we present it to our leaders, and we give them 20 minutes to get on board. And if they don't, then we go, why are you dragging your heels? They're not dragging their heels. Give them a moment to breathe. The Lord gave you days, weeks, months before you were ready to present it. If we give our leaders the gift of time, they will often come along with us more often than we realize. The Holy Spirit gave me, I was months pondering, thinking, and praying about this. In great fear and trepidation, presenting a name change to a church, that's a big deal. And when I, by the time I finally had nerve enough to present it, I thought, I got to give them some time too, because it took me a while. I gave them a month. The Lord spoke. We were able to move forward. Does it happen all, that, all the time that way? Of course not. But without it, it'll happen far, far less. Give them the gift of time. Let's take a pause there before we go to the next session.
hope you've enjoyed this week's sermon. For more information or to contact us, visit c3church.narara.net.